Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dudley Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamplot and Michael Sidgwick, here to review everything that happened on last night's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, Dupa, premium live events we have interviews round table discussions and a round of the week completes with a bloody good quiz of course on wrestle culture as i said though joined by hamlet and sidgwick to review what a stupendous episode of aw dynamite sidge yeah i mean jesus there was something on the show that i absolutely hated like hated. <laughs> there were things on this show that i thought nah, they boring but the peaks on this goddamn show was so incredible that you kind of have to label it very, very, very good at a minimum. People were raving about it. I couldn't really get there, but certainly very, very good. Yeah, it was like all-timer dynamite stuff on this show for me. Um, A really good feeling. Crucially, at the point in the calendar, we're at a really good feeling about the bulk of the Revolution card with the peaks on this show relating to the peaks of the storylines feeding into the pay-per-view. So it didn't just feel like an enjoyable episode of TV. It felt like enjoyable with a purpose. And I think that was what made it so satisfying. There are so many things I'm looking forward to discussing on this show um, in a way that I feel like I'll be too hyperbolic about. And then of like blowing my proverbial load before we get onto something that was even better than that, or even better than that, or even better than that. It felt like all the stuff I'm supposed to be invested in, my investment is at exactly the right meter and level. Um, and the things I didn't like on this show were mostly away from all of that, where they were kind of things that are at this point now already, what, 12 hours later, are already pretty irrelevant. Yeah, major, major developments as we head towards AEW Revolution. No more matches, please. That's enough. Mm. Stop right there. Eight matches, I think we've got confirmed now, Sige. More than enough, please. Uh, but let's dive straight into it because uh, the first thing on this show related to AEW Revolution, it was the uh, tag team battle royale uh, to determine one of the two teams who will face Jurassic Express in that three-way for the tag titles at Revolution. Um, so we had, I've probably missed a team out here, Best Friends, Butcher and Blade, Silver and Reynolds, Gun Club, FTR, Brand Powerful, Red Dragon, Duper 
Private Party and the Young Bucks all starting in the ring. Jurassic Express and uh, Christian Cage sitting at the top of the ramp, just 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 watching the carnage unfold. Um, early on, Blade knocks out Alex Reynolds, and then he takes too much time posing. So John Silver comes in to get some revenge for his mate and chucks him out. Uh, Santana and Ortiz get rid of the Gun Club without really any issue, uh, and then Butcher double clotheslines the books to take them down, but not out. Uh, the best friends then low bridge Butcher Red Dragon chucks out Chuck Taylor. Um, then Private Party both get eliminated and Matt Hardy just walks out on them furious. Santana takes out both members of Tupa L, uh, but then the books chuck out Ortiz and double super kick Santana out of the air. Lovely spot that. Uh, FTR and the books have a very brief showdown, which I'm sure excited Michael Sidrick, but that gets immediately broken up. There's a big brawl uh, and FTR chuck out Matt Jackson in amongst all that. Red Dragon think they've eliminated Trent. He's just hanging on uh, and out comes Orange Cassidy from underneath the ring to uh, pop him on his shoulders and effectively make the save. Uh, Trent gets back in, cleans house, running clothesline, gets rid of Bobby Fish. Uh, when we come back from the break, Silver eliminates Cash Wheeler, which I think leaves us with Dax Harwood, Kyle O'Reilly, Nick Jackson, Santana, John Silver and Trent. And they all sort of beat the crap out of each other briefly. Uh, Trent and Santana sort of slugging it out. Um, Trent gets hit with a discus lariat. Um, but he pulls out Santana onto the apron with him. Uh, never fight on the apron in these sorts of matches uh, because Matt Jackson and Kyle O'Reilly knock both of them out. We're down to four, and there's a sort of weird alliance between one member of Red Dragon and uh, one of the Young Bucks. Um, O'Reilly and Dax Harwood fight on the apron, and Dax Harwood gets eliminated by a returning Bobby Fish who just knocks him off the apron. Uh, John Silver hits a running knee to Nick Jackson's back. Uh, and to set up Nick, Nick, oh, Nick or Matt Jackson. Now I've got confused. Matt Jackson was the guy who was left. Thank yeah. you. Right. Uh, it, it sets up the spin doctor. Um, but then they uh work together, Jackson and O'Reilly, uh, to hit the I think it's called Chasing the Dragon, and that leaves Jackson to dump out John Silver. But as he does that, Kyle O'Reilly immediately just chucks him out, uh, to give the victory to Red Dragon. Um, let's talk about the match first, Sid, and then we'll talk about the, the post match. This was uneven, but electrifying when it mattered, which can basically be summarised, which can basically summarise the episode on the whole. A few things kind of pissed me off genuinely at the start of this match before it got very, very good indeed. I didn't like how Gun Club were portrayed. They looked like total geeks. They stood by the ropes for such a glaring amount of time where you could only think of them as morons for not realising, oh, hang on, I'm very susceptible to being eliminated here. Not only did I hate that sequence in itself, I didn't like Santana trying to chase the dragon of what he got memed for last week with a smile. It was like, right, it was good once. It was over once. The more you sort of chase that and try to memeify it, the more yeah. it just seems like grabby and desperate and like you just want to get on Twitter at the expense of like actually good pro wrestling. So I didn't like that in itself. And I also didn't like how Gun Club, and I know there are teams in a battle royale like the Butcher and the Blade and the Gun Club who have to just get tossed out early so that there's enough space in the ring to tell stories that matter and yeah. to um, foster some great action, which we did get by the end. But Gun Club have literally just been built for like, what, a month mm. as viable tag team contenders. They've just had the match, which given 
where it went in that long marathon taping, I think you could call it a success. Even if it wasn't, you should still preserve the idea that these were contenders once. Don't mug them off and make them look like comedy geeks, like prelim geeks, because it just makes the last month of your life feel like really disposable, more disposable than it was. So I thought that was a rare miss. It just felt like, oh, you don't, you're not meant to care about these. Well, why was I meant to care about them in the first place? <laughs> that was a rare lapse in an otherwise very elegantly constructed match that tried to do so much. And I appreciated the thought and the ambition and the layering of what I tried to do, even if the execution wasn't quite as magical as it was in February 2020, which is yeah. another long-standing take of mine. When this was good, though, it was very, very, very good. Dax Harwood and Kyle O'Reilly just worked an absolutely sublime match within a match. Desperate to see a singles match there. I'm desperate again to see a continuation of FTR versus Bucks. I adored the tease, the showdown, the stare down. Um, you didn't get much action, but that was by design. They just wanted you to have the thought of, yes, I want to see this happen again without giving it away, which I thought was really, really strong. Um, John Silver obviously did really, really well. I liked the interactions between Matt Jackson and Kyle O'Reilly, how they both eliminated Private Party, how that overlapped with the Private Party, Matt Hardy stuff. Like Some of this was so good that it made you kind of care in the moment about stuff that you don't care about. Mm during the rest of the TV show. Like, I don't give a toss about Private Party versus Matt Hardy. I know where it's leading to. Jeff Hardy's return. Just get to the goddamn point. <laughs> um, but in the context of this match, like, they made you care. And I think there was a lot uh, of good things to say about that. The finish was really strong. How it subverted the idea that Matt Jackson had been teased in, or lulled, rather, into teaming with Kyle O'Reilly. Um, I like the Trent Santana thing because I think ultimately, even more than Stadium Stampede, actually, I think the parking lot fight was the absolutely epitome of AEW's incredible creative and incredible thought of how to do great wrestling in a pandemic. That parking lot fight was a masterpiece. I'm glad the fans remembered. I'm glad that their showdown was treated with the gravitas that I deserved from an otherwise flat crowd, which diminished my enjoyment of the show more so than the, the social media pulse. Those are my takes. I'm glad, uh, yeah, Cedric, I like the Trent Santana showdown because it's flew in the face of the, the more forced ones that WWE often frame in the way of a WrestleMania sign. Obviously, we all think of the John Cena, Randy Orton, but there have been others where they're trying to force you to care about one, either because you want to see something or because you're supposed to have loved what you've seen before. AEW, like, I wouldn't say they took a gamble, but allowing Trent and Santana to have this moment was taking a bit of a chance on how much the audience would remember slash care, and they proved just how much they did on both counts. Like, I don't have much to add to Cedric's sort of analysis there. From an enjoyment point of view, it was a match of two halves, and maybe that was brought on by the nature of the, like, the, the B-team crew that had to be thrown out early. I they, It felt like it got good rather than was yeah. good throughout, and I think we've been led from time to time to expect a little bit more from AEW Battle Royals. Like they've done stuff with this form. It's, it, you know, we've been we've all been critical of the casino format, but this is different. And they've done stuff with this form that has proven that they can still be entertaining end to end. And it felt a bit like you were invited to rather passively watch this before you got to the meat of it at the end. But the meat of it was succulent, and there was loads on the bone. And I really appreciated not just the pairings of the like getting getting to see Dax back at that level and think of oh that'd be a really cool singles match, but then suddenly have FTR back in the conversation and perhaps winning or getting tag title match. And just as a contrast to something that I'm going to be very critical of later in the show, it's still weird to me that AEW can run a battle royal like this with a bunch of tag team wrestlers who want to wrestle for the tag team titles in the wrestling tag team division. And then later on, we have a tag team match completely overall 
by law and dark stuff. It's like, <laughs> look, what, look what actually matters on the wrestling show. It's the wrestling and it's the belts and it's the it's the prizes and the reason you go to work, not magic powers and toxic juice. <laughs> yeah, just to echo both of what, what you said, because uh, the first half of this match, I thought, oh, I'm really clearly quite royal rumbled out in terms of just like three men standing in a corner with one of them with his leg cocked over the top rope slightly. But like you say, once we got rid of some of the meat in the ring, let's say, and we got down to like, oh, these two have had an interaction before or since or, or, or could do something in the future. Or like you say, the interweaving storylines uh, and how over uh, Johnny Hungy was, uh, like you say, Sage, when there was like six people left and that's the team, that's, a you know, featuring recently signed Kyle O'Reilly, Bucks, etc. And you've got you know him getting chanted by the crowd is is, is a real endorsement of, of what they've done with that uh, that guy, um, and yeah the finish was great and we'll we'll, we'll cover it now in fact because uh, immediately after the match obviously Red Dragon and the books get into it and uh, in the midst of all that out comes uh, World Champion Hangman Page to attack Red Dragon for their cheap shot on him a while back. Um, uh, books doesn't don't really try to to save uh, O'Reilly and Fish either. Uh, in amongst all that, Adam Cole comes out to attack Page from behind, but Page actually gets the advantage, uh, and Red Dragon have to pull Cole out of the way before he can hit the bookshot lariat. Uh, Silver attacks them, and that allows Page to hit the bookshot lariat on Kyle O'Reilly, uh, and Page grabs a mic and a chair and says, it's story time with Adam Page, baby, uh, and tells a story about a smug kid named Adam Cole who got into wrestling a long time ago, uh, and won all the belts, basically, but now he wants the most prestigious prize in wrestling. Uh, but what he doesn't realize, Michael Hampler, is that he is inching closer to a grave and he'll land in that grave with a boom. I love this. I absolutely love this. I don't know if it's my, I, like this made me realize that maybe it's a little bit of WWE smooth brain on my part that when I don't feel like Adam Page, Hangman Page is at the center of everything as AEW world champion, I don't necessarily want them to compromise on that and make him a game show host. This was the perfect version of that. He's still as good as at the top of the show. His issue is at the top of the agenda, just like it's going to be at the top of a stacked pay-per-view. It's going to have a lot of stuff to follow on the night. So it's got to feel big, even though maybe we all know it's perhaps not the biggest conflict on the night. And this was the way to do it. I never want him to come out at the start and welcome us all to AEW Dynamite. Never, ever, ever. But I do like seeing the issue pushed back to the front and having the Battle Royal open... Um, obviously, by this point, they'd lined up a, a, a better singles main event that, you know, we was the late match that we couldn't preview. But otherwise, this you felt like this was going to go on last. But a great opener because the dovetailing is really nice. The fact that you've got this really cool sequence of events that leads to Paige knocking off Kyle O'Reilly's head because he was coming for Adam Cole and where the Young Bucks exactly fit into that as the, as the saviors of Cole. Red Dragon are now free, so you get a six-man tag next week because Paige and the Dark Order's relationship can still be used for storylines without going back to the well of I'm going to beat up all your friends. This is a, a more creative way to use the, the groups and the overlapping tales. Page's delivery was excellent. Um, walked, talked and act, acted like the world champion that I want to see. Um, I couldn't have been happier with this development off the back of the Battle Royal. Yeah, I love this. It was just pulsing with intrigue, overlapping storylines, Hangman Page's star power, delivery, and Hamlet's bang right about the placement of Hangman Adam Page on this particular episode of Dynamite because we've been conditioned for years and years and years to take certain slots seriously. The top of the hour, the opener, and the main event. And he spent a lot of time at the top of the hour 
and perhaps not quite as much time, like bookending the show is the first thing you think of or the last thing you think about when you leave it. So just putting him in this spot particularly, again, it, it might be smooth brain on my part as well, but you just sort of, you take it more seriously when it happens at a certain point of the show. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the main event, we had uh, Brian Danielson backstage talking up Daniel Garcia, but then saying he's kind of frustrated that he's not got a mentor, someone like William Regal. And he's instead hanging around with geeks like Tupe Um, And he said he would give John Moxley <clears throat> an answer soon. And then we got whoa, a phenomenal promo from one Maxwell Jacob Friedman. Uh, he walks down to the ring allows the CM Punk chance to sort of disperse. Uh, we were saying he's had seven days to prepare his response. What a response this was. Um, he talks about that photo of him meeting CM Punk and, and, you know, his love of CM Punk when he was a kid. Uh, and he used to wake up every morning because of wrestling. He was a huge fan. Uh, and he talked about uh, being diagnosed with really bad uh, ADD, uh, but then sort of still succeeding at school because he could get involved with the, the football side of things. Um, and then all of a sudden he's, he's walking down the corridor and some of his teammates walk up to him. They've got handfuls of quarters and they throw them on the floor and they say his words, not mine. Pick them up, Jew boy, pick them up. Um, and he said he went home devastated, cried, um, but then realized, no, that night is the night he's got the, the meeting, the signing with, with CM Punk. He's going to go and meet his hero. He just wanted to be just like him when he grew up. Uh, and he talked about fast forwarding to 2013 and having a load of scholarship offers to go and play football. But all he really wanted to do was, was be a wrestler. And that's, that's what he pursued. And then punk in January of 2014 left everyone, including himself behind walked away. He left uh, MJF said when, when MJF needed him the most uh, and MJF promised to be the hero, the punk should have been uh, and the man that everyone could look up to. Uh, he says at Revolution, look, Punk can whip me with the chain. He can make me bleed, but he will not give up. Um, and out comes CM Punk, who can't believe what he's seeing and hearing, basically. Um, and he hasn't got a mic, but he asks, asks uh, MJF, is this true? Is this what you're saying true? And uh, tears, tears are rolling down MJF's face as he acknowledges that it is true uh, and walks off up the ramp. Uh Wow. Um, we've been talking for months, if not years, Sige, about what a brilliant promo MJF is. But I think it's fair to say when we were saying that, it was a certain type of promo. Now, obviously, we've still got another week. This could all be part of MJF's plan. But uh, what a, what a, a brilliant promo. Uh, and, and to really control his narrative there, Sige. Don't use that today. You <laughs> He's taking the piss. He's taking the goddamn piss. I'm joking, of course, but what a promo. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible stuff. And the reason why it was so incredible is that it had to be the most believable and convincing performance of a lifetime. Otherwise, CM Punk looks like a tit yeah. for falling for it. But the joy, the absolute magic, dare I say it, the genius of this is that we all kind of believed him as well. So we're all in the same headspace as Punk. We're not thinking, are oh, you stupid idiot? You're falling for this obvious con because it was such an authentic performance, no doubt informed by very real experiences. The man behind MJF has actually felt, which is what you should do with pro wrestling material. Like I could talk for minutes, for like ages and ages on this. So forgive me if I ramble. 
But the idea, I think, I just want to get worked by this. I know it's a con. <laughs> yeah. I know it's a con, but it was such a convincing con that yet again, the genius is that when CM Punk, whose reaction was almost as phenomenal as his promo, by the way, when you thought he's got a little bit of doubt, he's almost like, you almost can feel the palpable guilt radiating from him. And he just thought, right, I'm right there with you. This is absolutely seminal, absolutely seminal stuff. What's happened is that I'm fairly certain, but you don't know when that's the genius, is that as soon as he realizes he's in trouble, the incredibly sociopathic manipulator, MJF, is doing his worst kind of manipulation yet. This is a man who's been manipulating people since day one. That's his entire character arc in this company. And this is the, I'm in trouble. How do I get out of it? Oh, I'll do the worst kind of manipulation possible. When it eventually gets revealed, how much is that going to heat up revolution? It is going to be an all-time of an angle. I cannot wait for next week to see how this story unfolds. It's episodic TV wrestling perfection, and it's so much better than I even thought it was last week and the week before, and I've loved this constantly since day one. I've used the analogy, like classic rock, CM Punk, right, has this attitude that I don't think he necessarily gets enough credit for having. When he was in WWE, he had to do anti-authority stuff because he recognized that this machine was broken and he genuinely at one point wanted to change it. But he doesn't have to tell that story now because he's in a competent pro wrestling organization. A comment that always struck me with CM Punk was WrestleMania should be the best bad guy versus the best good guy in the main event. And he thought that through the part-time sort of era and how it unfolded, that old concept of what wrestling should be had been completely tainted and he hated the fact that it happened right when he was the best bad guy. He's always just wanting to tell the story, the best good guy versus the best bad guy. And he's told an absolutely sensational version of it during this feud with MJF. So to wrong foot you and to make it a little bit more complex than that, or at least question if it's more complex than that at this specific time is genuinely incredible. My head says he's always oh, manipulative, sociopathic dickhead heel doing the worst kind of manipulation, the one that draws on your empathy and not your hatred, or they've just added, uh, whatever happens as well, is that if it's a ruse and it's a con, they've just added further emotion to the storyline, which is beautiful pro wrestling intricacy done by two masters, and they've made it even more emotional and not just something to admire for its long-term heft. Or they've added a new emotion into it that's just going to make it all the more of an unmissable pro wrestling experience. Um, performance, content, twist. This is a masterclass. This whole feud is a total masterclass. Pamphlet, we often say when it comes to, to heels across the board, they have to be sort of justified in their own mind. What an incredible, if you think he is one of these, villain backstory that MJF presented here. Yeah, well, it's justified both ways, isn't it? It's mm. justified if he is going in 100% earnest with the truth. And he's, as we said yesterday on the preview, he's taken seven days to formulate this response. Or it's justified if he believes, I've got to be this manipulative in order to win. You've known me long enough. You'd know that I'd sleep to those levels. So MJF has justified both versions of this. this that's why this was such a masterful idea. Um, it'd be easy to just talk about that without praising the execution, which which itself needed to be as good as it was. MJF's delivery was outstanding, as was Punk's follow-up. Like, I think this is the best thing AEW have ever done. 
and I was feeling it already. And then when Punk came out to face up to it, and again, note the contrast. Punk didn't take seven days. Punk took seven seconds. MJ finished talking and saying Punk was already coming down to the ring to face up to him like a man, to ask if this was true. He wasn't going to sit on it. He wasn't going to wait on it. And that again leads you to believe that MJF needs a week to become a master, like to be a master manipulator again, because Punk continues to show that like there are levels to this game and he's still in front and he's still more experienced. Punk did it in a second because he wanted to believe this has so many layers to it. Like nothing is earnest anymore. Well, so little is earnest anymore, apart from CM Punk. He came back last year and he poured his heart out during the first dance. John Moxley took time off again to deal with his problems and CM Punk approached that earnestly as a good guy should, as a nice person should, as a friend should. And that's what this promotion is. And now MJF gets to use, and potentially, if there is, if this is a ruse, use and abuse that for his own gain. And that we, like, again, like, you have to be, there has to be the right landscape for it. The company has to be the right setting. The vibe has to be right for this sort of thing to resonate. So again, they knew that, like, there's a lot of faith shown in AEW as a culture for this sort of promo to work and land in the way it did. Um, they showed immense guts, enormous guts here in... So my belief on this, from the very beginning, one of the themes of MJF versus CM Punk, to my mind, has been about um, every single time MJF shows his hand and then CM Punk can yet again slip back in and show that he's still the wisest, he's still got the most experience. And they played the visual version of that in the match. So he put his hand up like that and then the weapon drops out and that's how the dusty finish is a dusty finish and on they go. He didn't do it here. AEW had the guts to let him go all the way to the back and you're looking for a wink or you're looking for a, a nod or Wardlow to attack from the back. Like when Cole was walking out last week and Red Dragon attacked Hangman Page, anything like that, nothing. They're going to let us ruminate on this for a week, just like the CM Punk is forced to ruminate on this for at least a week, at least seven days. And that's if not all the way at the pay-per-view. You could argue that MJF clings onto this now all the way at the pay-per-view because he wants to go into the match in CM Punk's head. If there's a big, grand payoff next week, then that'll be cool because that'll be awesome for the heat. But you could honestly do both. You really, really could. Um, yeah, I, like it's the sort of thing where as soon as we stop recording, there's going to be something I wish something else I wish I praised about this. So, I, I will actually just read some of the responses online, regardless of how this plays out, go and look in MJF's replies today, or go and look in replies to AW's socials um, when they've been sharing this promo, because it appears on the surface at least, like this resonated, regardless of how this plays out in a storyline. A lot of people were very grateful that MJF went out there and told their story on AEW television. So it, it kind of, I don't think it does undermine it. No, it doesn't really matter if next week it was a storyline. Yeah. This week, a lot of people felt like they were being heard and represented. And that, aside from CM Punk and MJF, is quite a nice thing as well. You know, there was a there was a conversation had about bullying, even if it was used by the worst guy you know for one week of an evil scheme. And the fact that it's been given a week to breathe means that like those people's feelings will feel validated too. So that's a, another, and, and so they should, because as Cedric points out, CM Punk, to give himself up to this, has to believe it as well. Mm. AW, what was the Moxley one the other week? Moxley being wise to Brian Danielson. The baby faces have to be real human beings for you to truly relate to them. So CM Punk was here. Absolutely outstanding, elite tier, all-time pro wrestling storytelling this, this this feud. And thankfully, the, the match so far, like if the dog collar delivers, like this, I think this goes in top five North American wrestling lists for, for the whole lot. 
for the whole package. One more thing before we move on, because it's tempting to just talk about this and just spend too long of our day doing so. Even if he's fooled, he's still a kind fool. Yeah. Yeah. Wrong does not, not get baby-faced. still like, better to be earnest. It's still yeah. better to be earnest than it is. We just, we're all lost in it now. But it is still better to just feel the real emotions than, than be like, no, I'm not having that. Because you don't get the you don't get the victory lap just for not being fooled at the end, do you? No, he's still going to be baby faced by the end of this. And honestly, his run in AEW so far has been so great that I'm beginning to question. Because I never he's obviously always better as a heel in WWE and probably in ROH as well. Like some of his patter is a WWE baby face was genuinely not great all of the time. So I'm not saying he was a great babyface in WWE, at least compared to his heel run. But this AEW run, it's made me think, is he, is he an even better babyface hmm. than he ever was a heel? He's incredible at this. He's unbelievable at this. Yeah, I think just to, just to reiterate, I was just sitting there listening to you both. And, you know, you're talking about this feud. And obviously, Sid, I saw your tweet this morning about saying how this is a five-star feud from, from, from start to finish. And I think just as a wider point, I don't want to go off on a, too much of a tangent here, but, you know... I'm a fan of AEW. I would watch AEW if I wasn't doing this as part of my job. But I will also sit here and say it has a multitude of issues. It is not perfect. However, when it comes to long-term feuds, it takes me back, Sige, to the days where you'd have, maybe not DVDs, but like tapes, and it'd feature a series of matches between people. And I feel like now you could literally release DVDs of like, uh, obviously uh, Omega and, and, and Hangman Page and you, you track that history of, of them as a tag team and then the, the, the you know Kenny Omega and, and, and their quality you know their, their knockout match to become the number one contender and then obviously subsequent win of Hangman Page become world champion and you could do the same with the, I mean not only the matches but the promos between between Punk and, uh, and MJF it really is <laughs> to, to ape a point that we often talk about it really is a long term storytelling promotion isn't it yeah, absolutely. This has just been magical. I'd buy physical media if those products existed. I don't really buy them anymore. No, exactly. Um, we go backstage and there is Daniel Garcia in 2.0. 2.0 says, nobody cares about Danielson wanting to be Garcia's mentor. And they get all fired up and Matt yells down the camera lens, you want a taste? You're going to get a taste tonight. Uh, and Daniel Garcia says he is already... Ultra violent, uh, as if I needed any more encouragement to get excited about this pamphlet. Yeah, um, I wish we'd have had more time to talk about this in the preview yesterday. I'm so glad we get to revel in the action of it in the main event. But this promo was an absolute hoot. 2.0 remain one of the most perfect all-around acts in AEW for the purposes they serve. And I was so hyped for this. I wish we'd had longer to get excited. Yeah, same here. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? 
Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Right. Then, <laughs> then we got the Kings of the Black Throne versus Death Triangle. Uh, and Penta's got this new gimmick, Penta Oscuro. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Dark Penta, basically. He comes up with his kind of shovel and what have you. But before we talk about this match, Michael Sidgwick, this is the hospital pass of all hospital passes. Talk to me about Alex Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go too footed on the bloke. He's I love him. Have, he's obviously having himself a nice little time. I don't think he should be having as nice a time as he's having. No. I've had the take for quite some time that Alex Abraham is, his presence makes Death Triangle infinitely less cool. They used to be cool. Like, they genuinely used to be cool. When we first heard the words Death Triangle uttered on AEW television, that's the coolest goddamn faction name I've ever heard. You've got Pac, Phoenix, and Penta all in a faction. They're going to win the trios titles. That never actually happened. It was all, this is the most awesome thing. And then the pandemic happened, like, literally a week later. And then they got Abrahenters um, to translate Penta's promos because this is, unfortunately, in some respects, North American wrestling TV. I would much rather, because Penta's an awesome promo, much like Tanahashi, much like Anita. If I can't understand a word he's saying, I can infer that he's incredible at the craft of talking and he's just cool as all hell. There's a line, and I'm going to swear here, Right, so finger on the button. You had a promo exchange with Tommaso Ciampa, like before Ciampa went to NXT and Penta was ripping up the um, indie circuit. And it was subtitled, um, I'm a bad motherfucker, you bald piece of shit. <laughs> he said this to Champa, and it didn't need the subtitle to be as threatening as it was. And then because it's North American TV and AEW sort of indulges itself in sort of patronizes the audience. Oh, we need to hear what the person who doesn't really speak English very well is saying. So they've got Abrahantas and Abrahantas comes out and he goes, Zero, Miedo. And he's like, he's dancing on the stage. And it's like, you're a geek. You're a geek who's dragging this act down. And I don't, I think him being happy to be there is a genuine detriment to the act. He comes off as an attention hog. He loves being on TV. I think he likes being over. I think he likes being associated with the act. What does he do that's a benefit to the act other than translating? I just think he looks like a fan. I don't think he does anything for this act at all. And when I saw him looking like Count Dracula, <laughs> I could not have thought of this as more lame. And genuinely, this crowd wasn't the hottest. And it was quite bad, especially in contrast to last week, which was genuinely a proper AEW crowd. They were dead silent. And when they are silent and they're not interested in this, it just exposes how rotten the presentation of all of this was. Abraham has looked like a complete dork cosplaying as a monster or a, it just looks so stupid, so farcical. So I'm trying to get over. And the presentation of Penta wasn't particularly good either. I thought the whole idea, and I'm not picking my goddamn lucha underground. 
I've seen some of the best of it, but I, I'm no by no means a completist. I thought the idea was Penta had a scary mask and he broke people's arms and that was really cool and he was vicious and violent and dangerous. I don't need to see him cosplaying as some kind of amorphous supernatural character with gravestone imagery. I don't need Hammer Horror Penta. This is Hammer Horror bollocks and it killed this atmosphere dead. Like the little dry ice or smoke or whatever just looked so kitsch, so camp, so detrimental to whatever this was meant to be. You can't do supernatural stuff in AW. I'm sorry, you can't. And you can't do the worst of supernatural, which is hammer, horror, hokey, dressing up your stars and your ring and making it look like the front of a Halloween house. But he looked pathetic. He looked, looked like the Grim Reaper from Bill and Ted. Which <laughs> is what he looked. He looked exactly like the Grim Reaper from Bill and Ted. I, I just hated this. Yeah, like I would just want to build on Cedric's point there about this Penta rebadge before we get to the match, which I think was, I think the match was pretty rubbish anyway, I think, but it was a little bit undermined by this yeah. relaunch. Cedric pointed out in the preview yesterday, you may be trying to do too much here by pushing the relaunch of a new act while still simultaneously trying to push a team at the same time. And I think they were overwhelmed at that by the finish. So it's just absolutely dreadful. I am going to, you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to put over The Undertaker. You know, wow. Oh, this must be bad. I'm stamped this, right? So um, for those that like want to watch it on the network or Peacock or whatever, the Undertaker, one of The Undertaker's relaunches, one of his better ones um, was at the Survivor Series 1996 when Mankind had beaten him like a drum. Paul Bearer had turned on him and it was time for the Purple Gloves to go. People will remember the quite famous visual of him flying into Madison Square Garden, bit of a Batman aesthetic. Leather Daddy Undertaker he was. First time he'd had that sort of gear. The gloves were gone. The cartoonish era was all gone. And the whole point of that was, um, there's a bit, there's a spot in the match where he, uh, after fighting all year with Mick Foley and boiler rooms and grave sites and that, he nails him, he nails Mankind with a drop toe hold and Jim Ross absolutely loses his goddamn mind. He's like, have you ever seen the dead man do a drop toe hold? And it, <laughs> it's not just like this leather gear and the prison tear tattoo. He's had to go away and completely rethink it. He's like, I've lost Paul Bearer. I've not got the power of the urn. I might have the people on my side, but am I also a wrestler as well as a grave digger? And am I going to beat this guy just by having actually beat him? I can't rely on the magic powers anymore. I'm going to have to beat him. Sure enough, he beats mankind. He slays that beast and he goes on and he wins the WWF title at the next WrestleMania. That is a relaunch. That is a, like, you can understand that character reimagining himself beyond a stupid look. You can't just come out, do Hammer Horror, come out with Danhausen by your side, looking very nice and very evil and thinking, oh, this is it. I'll fix Penta. Like, you completely undermined a character that, by the way, when pushed, people still enjoyed. Like, Penta was dying on the vine because AEW were letting him, not because he was doing anything different to his act, and all made all the more worse by him coming out and doing this and still pretty much being Penta L0M. It's still party Penta. Like, just because he's got, like, the it's like slightly darker gear and a different mask, and Alex Abrahantis looks a tit. Like, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like we got much in the match that made you believe that Penta's had some sort of like reawakening or had any kind of relaunch, this was just Penta. It's like when Sting went heel all those years ago and you just did the same moveset and you're like, oh, okay, there you oh, go. You're not, oh, you're not committing to this, so I don't need to either. I thought this was really lame. And like face-to-face with some more lame guys and the lame law, like you, you give these dorks too much rope and look what they do with it. Yeah. Honestly, man, like get, like get this nonsense under control because the wrestling at points can be great. There is a spot in this match 
that in a completely different context, I would have squealed over. I think you probably both know the one I'm referring to. Within the body of this match, I was like, piss off, piss off. I refuse to buy this. I refuse to believe this because you're just, you are, <laughs> in tribute to what's his name, you're selling me smoke and mirrors. Yeah, let's talk about the match itself. They brawl, obviously, before the bell. Uh, Penta dives onto the uh, the Kings of the Black Throne and Pack hits a 450 on uh, Malachi Black for a near fall. In comes Brody. God, I love Brody King. He in comes Brody King, massive clothesline on Pack for a, for a two count to take us to break. When we come back, I think this is the spot. I assume this is the spot you're talking about, Hamplet. King <laughs> hit Pack so hard that he hit because he was on Penta's shoulders. That he hit Penta with poison Rana. I went, well, that's preposterous. You know, when you guys used to do the uh, Ric Flair, woo, and then chop each other. Yeah. Nightmare when that happened, wasn't it? I remember once when, like, Cleary chopped you and your poison Rana jewels by mistake. <laughs> Absolute nightmare by the put. Me and Sidrick were trying to play a pool, and it was like, oh, that's his neck broken. Havlet's right, though. If this spot was, like, nestled in the peak of, like, it's just a ridiculous PWG sprint, mm. it'd be going. You'd be doing backflips over the just ambitious stupidity of it in this context, not having it. Uh, so then I think King hit a big dive at that point, and then comes Malachi Black. It's a German suplex bridge, gets a near fall. Uh, they go for that uh, Dante's Inferno finish of theirs, but Pack breaks it up and he keeps trying to knock down Brody King. Repeated pump kicks, uh, gets a German suplex on uh, Brody King, but Malachi Black's made a blind tag. He goes to hit the mist. And Penta covers his mouth like, like, I don't know what it is, like a parent forcing their child to finish whatever they're eating and rolls him up and pins him. And I was like, oh, okay. And then uh, it just keeps going. I wouldn't talk about all this in one go because it was just carnage. Um, they immediately do the WWE thing of like, well, that didn't matter. Pop straight up, beat down their opponents. Um Malachi Black grabs, I think it's just Penta's shovel, he grabbed from the outside, and the lights go out, and when they come back on, who's standing in the ring but a debuting new All Elite member, uh, Buddy Matthews, the former Buddy Murphy from WWE, and uh, it looks like maybe he's there to, to, to help out Pack and Penta, but Swerve, he attacks Penta, and uh, as the security comes down to make this save, Brody King just hits every single one of them, lays them all out. Um, and yes, Matthews has aligned himself with the Kings of the Black Throne and uh, stomps Penta's face onto a chair to close this dreadful segment, uh, Sage. There were two moments, of, like the chop poison runner thing. I was like, ah, that was cool. I was like, it was bittersweet, like, that oh, was cool. But she was in a better match. Brody King doing a dive, right, was so good, and the selling of it was so good that Penta and Pack looked like they'd been sort of propelled halfway up the ramp because mm. of the power of this dive. That looked great. S- certain bits of the action were very, very good. The crowd did not give a toss. It looked dark order creeper level bad. The contrast between a dead crowd, Abraham is, it just was so weak. The match itself didn't like the finish. Malachi Black, so he has... I love if this. He, if he spray, if he, I love this take, by the way. If he can spray the mist in people's eyes, right, and it hurts them and it corrupts them, if he swallows it himself, right, it corrupts or hurts him, why is it okay in his mouth? <laughs> why is it okay just being in his mouth? Does he not have pores on the inside of his cheeks? 
Like what? It's what stupid load of nonsense. You know when you uh, you know when you tell the kids like if they've like had a little choke of the food and you just like you try and trivialize it and make it normal so they don't get too upset. Oh, it's just gone down the wrong hole. Do you think he's got two separate pipes? And it's like, oh no, it's gone down the wrong hole. One of them's hurt, one of them's healed because it's a adjacent <laughs> nonsense. The it's post like, match. Oh my god. So go on. Right, a fatal fine line with these tag teams, right? If Malachi Black and Brody King were in that battle royal at the start of the night and like just scared 2.0 of the gun club to the point where they're pretty much like pissing their pants at the mere sight of them and then batter them with really cool wrestling moves and eliminate them from the match, that's pretty good fear law, isn't it? Because these are like scary looking dudes with their matching tattoos and they're, they're like they're killed or massive. Yeah, particular aesthetic that like a 2.0 would be like. Oh my god! Like I don't want a taste of that. And then they just get tossed out because they're they're frozen in fear, and then they do an awesome move. You can you can make this work in a pro wrestling context, but all of these guys love taking it so far away from the pro wrestling context that it loses all of its impact and all of its power on a show where everywhere else on this card, really great wrestling stuff was happening. Like this is the this is the like WWE trying to promote the Brothers of Destruction and DX is like that's this is not real part of WWE Raw. We just have to do it for the Saudi show. Like everywhere else in the card, it was wrestling stuff, and then it was this ugly, ugly this. Not a WWE show, but I understand your point. <laughs> this goddamn post match, right? There is a bad version of every good thing. I feel like I need to underline that point to prevent counter arguments. There is a bad version of every good thing. It's terrible pizza. It's terrible whatever. There is terrible interpromotional continuity. I understand that it's to the absolute benefit of AEW to acknowledge all of pro wrestling, to make all of it feel like it matters, to better immerse people in the interior lives of the characters. Look at the CM Punk Eddie Kingston exchange. That's a great version of a very good thing you should do more often than not. Carrying over WWE 2020 pandemic output into 2022 AEW canon. Why? Well, I do not give a toss about the law or the relationship between Buddy Matthews and Malachi Black. It was part of the worst year in WWE history. It's all wrapped up in extracting eyeballs in an empty gym, with the worst props and the worst stakes and the most desperate branding and the weird non-C relationship with Ilya Mysterio. I want to forget this forever. I do not do not want it to factor in to an absolutely otherwise incredible pro wrestling promotion, like entering a golden period of pro wrestling history. Just do something else. Do not use 2020 WWE cinematic match canon in AEW. It's a total and utter waste of time. The fans just wanted to pop for Buddy Matthews. And that the way that this was framed and are they working together? Did he in that moment corrupt? Who gives a toss? You're either mates or you're not. Don't <laughs> do conflict. Don't do melodrama. That you have to... Like, who, care, who cares about WWE's 2020 pandemic stuff? Who cares? Well, the idea that they're sort of they're back at House of Black HQ, and they're like, it was really good, but um, you were supposed to teleport to the ring after I'd done his throat in with a shovel. Come on, like there, you're supposed to be like, like, you weren't supposed to appear until then. Use your magic powers wisely, buddy. <laughs> Did you uh, see the tweet? Buddy? 
Magical buddy. Did you see the tweet from uh, Jake, 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 by the way, about more long-term storytelling? See this? I did not. See this? You heard about this? Guess who's the same age as uh, Aaliyah Mysterio in AEW? I did see this. Julia Hart. Hello. (laughs) He said, what kind of promotion wouldn't capitalize on a 13-year age difference love story? (laughs) I'd love that tweet. A thousand black would take your eye out. Yeah. They'll see Malachi Black's trunks. Maybe that should be his gimmick. Like, sexy moth guy. (laughs) I just... Yeah, this was after weeks of going, I don't really like the law stuff, but yeah, at least we can get good stuff with Malachi Black and Brody King are in the ring. And we did get some great stuff. Brody King's fantastic. But my God, everything else here. Uh, it, it was the, nope, no, keep it in. <laughs> no, bollocks been rolled up. One, two, three. See you later. Fantastic. Uh, should we move on and talk about something a lot better? It's like, it just... Swallowed on like by accident. Oh, bloody hell, I'm corrupted. <laughs> Every other time he's had this mist in his mouth, right? Which somehow is different when it's in his stomach. What if, like, it's just his reflexes kicked in and when he got something in your mouth, oh, sw- oh I'm evil now. I'm evil to begin with. How can he corrupt Malachi? It's such nonsense. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like it's describing how someone makes like a dog take medicine no no until you've swallowed it i'm not letting you open your mouth again come on corrupt yourself <laughs> oops i'm evil <laughs> <laughs> we got a video package for brick baker and thunder rosa uh baker said thunder rosa never beat her on paper and rosa said well this time uh, it's finally gonna count and then we got the confrontation between chris jericho and eddie kingston what a back and forth this was. Um, Kingston's not happy that there's a, a line of security. A little bit where Kingston walked out and just stood next to the security, like that bloke who tried to pretend he was a member of Man United in the Champions League once <laughs> or whatever. Um, he says, what's the bloody point of all this? He says, I'm not a sports entertainer. This is a bloody wrestling company. Uh, and Jericho acknowledges that Stanford's just down the road. Uh, and maybe this sports entertainment will actually be entertaining. And he's got a story for us. He talks about uh, hearing all this buzz about Eddie Kingston coming to AEW and said, I'd never heard of you. I thought you were Eddie Edwards, basically. Um, And then he said Kingston showed up and he went, ah, that's why I've never heard of you. You look like a jobber, basically. Uh, But then he saw Kingston's match against what's his name? Uh, And but heard Kingston's promo and thought, ah, there we go. There's something there. Um, and he said, uh, I knew you'd become this huge baby face. And that's exactly what happened. And <laughs> Kingston say, what's a baby face? Um, and he said, oh, well, everyone was so excited to see you sign this contract at 38 years of age, except me, because I got famous when I was just 22. I turned the wrestling world upside down when I was just 22, basically. Um, by the time I was 38, I'd main evented pay-per-views. I'd made millions of dollars. Basically, he's saying that uh, he's jealous of Chris Jericho. Um and uh, Kingston says, oh, you only did all those things that you just mentioned because I wasn't there. And then he says, look, I don't leech off people like you. I'm not like the rest of the carnies that lie and talk to the promoters. I tell promoters to F off because I'm always going to do things my way until I die because um, he's got to look himself in the mirror. Um, and he says, look, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk. I want to fight. Um, Jericho, you're just, you know, there to suck the blood out of me. And my two blood's too thick for that. You might be able to do it to the young guys, but not me. I do things on my own. How about we have this fight then? Eddie Kingston versus Chris Jericho at Revolution. Um, but before Chris Jericho gives him an answer, he asks if 
Eddie Kingston has ever heard of. Achievemophobia, I think was the uh, phrase he used. Uh, it's the fear of success. Um, he said that if Eddie Kingston had had his success, he'd just fallen off the side of the mountain. Uh, and he ooh, cuts a little bit close to the bone next. He says, I've heard all the stories about your family, about your uncle, who's a failure, about your father, who is a failure. Uh, and he says, look, you can't win the big one, Eddie. Edward, sorry. I started using their, their full you know, names, like you're a parent getting told, telling your kid off. Edward can't win the big one in AEW. In and Chris Jericho, he is the big one. Never mind about anyone else. Um, if you want me at the pay-per-view, Jericho says, it is on. Uh, and you know what? If you beat me, uh, I will, I'll look you in the eye. I'll shake your hand. I'll say I respect you. Because if you beat me, that means that I've helped you get over this fear of success. And uh, Kingston says to Christopher that the match is on, but he doesn't want the uh, the guy who gave, gave us the Mimosa match or the one who got shoved off a cage by MJF. He wants the world champion. He wants the one who bled in Tennessee, the one who turned WCW upside down, all those sorts of things. Uh, the one who his good friend Levesque hated. Um, because if it isn't, that's Jericho. Eddie Kingston says he's going to eat him alive. Um, and Jericho promises to be Le Champion, that Jericho. Um, but he knows that Eddie Kingston can't beat him simply, Michael Sidgwick, because he's a loser. Hit his music and then he storms out. I love the structure of this. When you reminded me of the I will eat you alive line, just how the promo started and how it ended without physical interaction to sort of cheapen it almost. I just thought the level of graduating tension was genuinely great. I saw criticism of this on social media by the usual suspects who really go two-footed into whatever it is Chris Jericho does, irrespective of what it is. I just thought, oh, hey, man, give the guy a bit of a break. The way this took a turn, the Mimosa Mayhem reference as well, because Chris Jericho was such a pretty arrogant dude that like, when he's ever in his podcast, he always says, oh, you know, after we had the Mimosa May- Mayhem match, everyone was saying, oh, I would like to do that. Not a single soul said that. And yet you're <laughs> thinking otherwise. And Eddie Kingston knows this. Chris Jericho has this reputation quite well earned. MJF pointed it out in character earlier last year where the rub is not Chris Jericho doing anyone a favor. It's him associating himself with the star power of others to remain relevant. Through every single beat of this promo, I honestly got the feeling that he wrapped up his ego and his image in a ball, threw it at Eddie Kingston and said, knock that out of the park, Mm. knock that out of the park. I'm here to get you over. This is the first time in ages where I felt Chris Jericho was just doing everything possible through sort of puncturing his own facade and everything else. I just thought he just really earnestly wants to get Eddie Kingston over at the end of all this. And I was tremendously happy with that. Oh, this was absolutely phenomenal. I haven't seen those criticisms, but I'm I was surprised when you mentioned that they were even there. An absolutely phenomenal textured bit of business that still served as a promo to sell a fight to a pay-per-view. By far the most effective salesman job of Jericho versus Kingston as a match, which again coming at like at the right time in the program, too. Um, I loved the so the whole like the whole thing hanging over this promo was very much a matter of I wouldn't say it was direct dig at AW versus WWE, but about differences. This exposed the gaping flaw in the John Laurinaitis School of Talent Development because wrestling should be about differences. Differences in people. You don't just 
like bring up 10 identical footballers or the athletic 10 divas division or whatever. You need differences in people, in personalities, in look, in style, in the lives they've led and the careers they've had, which is what was constantly referenced here between Eddie Kingston and Chris Jericho. These are different people and they have differences in opinions, which is why they're going to fight fundamentally is about the way that they view life. And that's what this was, all of this was. They've lived what many people would consider a similar one because they're both long-tenured professional wrestlers. But all you need to do is visually look at them to see the various different roads that have brought them to this point. And I think the references to WWE in that regard, Stamford, Sports Entertainment, that company down the road and that were pointed for a purpose. It wasn't just digs. It was pointed for a purpose because that was the, that was what they were trying to illustrate here. Chris Jericho has always idolised Shawn Michaels and he's continued to do it this week, hasn't he? By using what uh, Eddie Kingston opened up to in his Players' Tribune against him for Patter, much like Shawn Michaels did to Dax Harwood, as we found out on Rene Paquette's sessions. So even that, if that was by accident, even that was quite a nice, nicely timed bit of a dig. Uh, and I agree with Sidrick. This is, wrestling's not real. This is Chris Jericho allowing himself to be punctured, allowing the artifice of Chris Jericho to be pricked at by an Eddie Kingston. You know, that Chris Jericho is positioning himself for us, the fans, to buy into the work. We don't need to think, oh, there's Jericho again, stealing a bit of a living or stealing somebody's spotlight. This very storyline started with all of us kind of cynically going, oh, he spotted that Kingston's a world title contender. I'll have some of that. This was the total opposite. This was them asking you to buy into the work and buy into the idea that Chris Jericho is an egotist that just wants to kind of put his thumb on Eddie Kingston just, just a little bit. And they've now woven that into the storyline. This felt, this felt real to me, knowing full well that these are tenured professionals probably going out there trying to work me. I absolutely love this and I cannot wait for the match. Yeah, some great promos on this show. I really changed my opinion on Chris Jericho again in uh, in recent weeks uh, for all the reasons just laid out there. Really like this. Thought they set up the match perfectly. And like you say, um, it felt like both guys gave up a lot to allow the other one to to cut some great stuff in this one. So really enjoyed that. On the on the what's-his-name thing as well, because, again, I haven't seen it, but, I, like, of course, there's going to be discourse and conversation. I actually thought that was pretty inspired by Chris Jericho. So you don't be a dick to Cody Rhodes long-term is, is, is the message I would, I would say. Don't be a dick to Cody Rhodes long-term. Don't let this become... Because it kind of does actually make WWE look like what they're going to say they are, which is welcoming back everybody that like had a bit of fun down there and back you come to the overlords. Don't do that long-term. Cody, like Cody is as much part of the wrestling history that you can acknowledge throughout the rest of the show. And he's a part of your company's history. Jericho here probably got a win-win because if he name checks Cody, while this story is still so hot and timely, Cody, there's probably going to be a Cody chant in the building or booze that are again going to overwhelm what he's trying to say. When he says, what's his name? It's a little bit of a chuckle. It's a little bit of fun. But then that becomes the story after the fact. When they've put the microphones down and when everybody's gone home, what's his name is something that we can discuss on podcasts or we can have fun with on Twitter. It didn't derail what they were doing here. Much as Eddie Kingston's uh, little sort of, I got a GED or what's a baby face. They were just there because these human beings, they weren't there to derail the promo. And I think, I think what's his name was pitched just right for this. GED line was class as well. Whatever Kingston does crosstalk. Just a, a, a response. It's like, oh, this is real. It, it isn't, but it yeah. makes it feel like it's real. Yeah, great stuff. Um, backstage in the stairwell, of course, uh, Matt Hardy's there with all the AHFO, uh, and they're talking about the fact that Andrade's challenging for the TNT title on uh, uh, Friday's Rampage. 
But uh, Hardy also, after a bit of a disagreement, agrees uh, and, and announces a Tornado Trios match with Andrade, Matt Hardy and Isaiah Cassidy against Sting, Darby Allen, and Sammy Guevara at Revolution. Hamlet, you rolled your eyes as soon as I started talking about this. Right. I'm not suggesting that a Tornado Trios match with um, Darby Allen and Sammy Guevara uh, won't be great, right? And and Sting, for that matter, Sting and Darby's chemistry as a tag team and all that. Like, th- this is not my criticism. My criticism is that you've made this such lame duck bollocks that a Tornado Trios match that features Sting and Darby Allen, to my mind, should go on the kickoff. It does not belong on this pay-per-view. Like, this is the criticism I've had for weeks. This is absolute clown shit. And you're using some of your biggest stars to try and get it over. It's been nothing but, like, fluff, like, opening match fluff. And at this point now, when you're actually presenting it as a match, I don't want it on the pay-per-view. Like, it's a... It's a Constant problem with one exception that these AW pay-per-views can sometimes feel long or a match has to die for the rest of the pay-per-view to live. And this, you're committing this to revolution. I honestly, I hope it's on the buy-in. I've got very little interest in watching this match. It does feel so inessential, particularly on a night when at least four matches feel like absolutely enormous must-see propositions. Um, If I'm being cynical about it, and I know they've been building it for a while with Matt Hardy and Andrade and all the rest of it, but it just feels to me like to the detriment of something interesting and focused with the TNT title and the guy who holds it, it feels to me like the second they thought we can get Jeff Hardy, it just felt like, right, it's time to get Matt Hardy back into the mix. When realistically, they could have done now with him. Then the second that the Hardy boys reunite, I'm not even the biggest Hardy Boys guy, but so many people adore this act that you could have done now with Matt Hardy, done something quiet like they're doing with the private party stuff away from the TNT title picture. Just base it around private party, turning on Matt Hardy and a few quiet segments on Dynamite and then Jeff Hardy returns and then that's the real quiz. To do it around Sting and Darby and Andrade and this really sort of anti-deft dovetailing we saw a lot of deft dovetailing stuff in the uh, the battle yeah. royale. And I know people like it when I say it. So we saw a lot of really good deft dovetailing stuff. This is anti-deft dovetailing, convoluted bollocks, unfocused. My holly sucks. Right. Just on, like, sorry, I know we're probably going to end up going long because so much was good on this show, but we're kind of whinging about the bad as well. Darby Allen's a pillar, right? I'm not a Darby Allen guy, but he's a pillar and he's absolutely earned that state as well and how, we, how much he matters to AEW. Um, at this point, the booking of him has been often so wet that you could turn him heel on CM Punk and say, I lost to you and I spun off. The MJF match was incredible, but you use the loss element of that as part of this story. The rest of the stuff that he's been done has been so inessential and so fluffy. And even when he's teaming with Sting, it feels like, like there's a lot of farting around. They never got their tag team title program that their genuinely good tag team run probably should have warranted. So that didn't happen. There was no program to speak of. He's farted around in this for a while. The MJF feud, and like the feud wasn't so great, but the match absolutely ruled. But you could honestly, at this point, tell a legitimate story to make good for some of this, that ever since he lost to CM Punk, he's completely gone off the rails. And like he turns on Punk or he turns on Sting and you get Derek Derby, yeah, or even Derek, even Derek Derby. Like this character could be a heel before he turns babyface again. But do you get my point? Like the... The booking has been so haphazard with this pillar figure that, like, that would almost make logical sense at this point. 
one defeat has sent him spiraling. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right, next up, we got the uh, another qualifier for the Face of the Revolution ladder match. It was uh, 10, who's getting a lot of uh, TV matches recently, of the Dark Order versus the gorgeous Ricky Starks. Uh, back and forth early on, 10's obviously got the power game. He even took, a, took us to the break with a delayed vertical suplex. Um, but Stark sort of regains control during the commercials. Uh, when we come back, though, he just gets levelled by a shoulder tackle. Uh, and uh, 10's going for the full Nelson, finally locks it on. Uh, but Starks manages to fight out of it by grabbing at 10's mask behind him. Uh, and he hits him with the spear and gets him with the one, two, three to qualify for the ladder match. I'm lo- I love Ricky Starks, but he's uh, in there with some uh, big old bastards in that face of the revolution ladder match, Stitch. Yeah, this was... A little bit better than the filler that it was, I think. Like, I like the shoulder tackle. Like, there's a bit of explosivity around 10 that I didn't dislike, but it just felt... I, I can't make my mind up on whether this was just a waste of time and they could have arrived at Ricky Starks entering the match in a more entertaining way. I don't know if the existing pattern of everyone who's entered this match and putting 10 in there was like, oh, they're just going to make it all horses and his stock's not going to be in it, this would have been far more effective had 10 not got beat off Adam Cole. Yeah. It makes no sense that he was in the match, though I understand kind of why he was put there because they tried to wrong foot you with, oh, another horse going in. That would have been effective had Adam Cole not beaten him the previous week. So it makes no sense from a logical wins and losses matter perspective, from an interest level, or, yeah, this is... Rick Starks is going to be class in the match. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, nothing against 10 Hamlet, but he does feel right now to be Tony's flavor of the month. Yeah. He, um, it's weird, isn't it? Because like Cedric says, it's like, could you be asking questions about how he arrived in this match at the first place, other than to do the, to do the, the booking wrong foot on the night. Ricky Starks has beaten a big man. So he can beat three more in the, in the ladder match. That's like, that's what this can tell. Now, Ricky Starks can say that out loud, not least when one of them's his mate. And I'm sure you're going to help me, Hobbs, and all that kind of thing. And you have a bit of tension there. I I, I wanted this to be better, if I'm honest. Um, we clamoured and clamoured and clamoured for Ricky Starks to get more TV matches. So I know this didn't go long, and it's probably only five minutes, and it was punctured by a commercial break, but so was the TBS title match, and that was vastly superior. Um, I, I did expect a little bit more from Ricky Starks here. Ten can be, ten can be another Kane in the way that Lance Archer is a main event Kane. Ten can be a mid card Kane. Yes, but, but, you know. So there's there's a purpose to guys like that, and he can improve along the way. But I did. I wanted a little bit more out of Starks. I think here, mm. he'll be fine on the night. Yeah. Uh, right, we're running quite long here, so I'll, I'll wrap wrap up some of the other stuff that happened. We had uh, Adam Cole and Red Dragon celebrating their win. In comes the Young Bucks. They're furious. They're calling it a double cross. Did I catch Kyle O'Reilly say I just blacked out in the... Uh, in the yeah. <laughs> I love him. Um, so the Bucks are obviously now even more motivated. They're going to win next week. Uh, they're going to qualify for that uh, uh, three-way uh, for the tag titles, and they're going to beat their asses at the pay-per-view. And the Bucks storm out. And Cole yells at, uh, at Red Dragon, who are yelling after the books, and says, for the love of God, can everyone not just get along for a team? Got a lot on my plate to deal with right now. Uh, nice little little advancement here, Sige. Yeah, this is good. Um, and then we got the TBS Championship match, Jade Cargill defending against the Bunny. We sort of speculated yesterday whether the Bunny was going to 
you know, run Jay Cargill close. I think there was any doubt in anyone's mind going into this that she was going to retain, but uh, told an interesting story here. Jay dominates early on. She's doing push-ups. She's got a buddy in an arm lock. Um, but then Bunny fights back, dodges a strike, whiplashes Jade's neck over the ropes and sends her into the barricade with a Russian leg sweep to take over. We go to break when we come back. Bunny hits a, a knee lift, but Jade then catches the Thez press and spine busters the bunny. Uh, Matt Hardy jumps up on the uh, apron to distract the official and, and give her the brass knucks. But Jade gets given the championship belt by Smart Mark Sterling. Um, they sort of cancel each other out with that. And Bunny rolls Jade up for two. Uh, hits her with two thrust kicks, but as she tries to hit the uh, down the rabbit hole finish of hers, it gets reversed into Jaded for the one, two, three. Um, was this the sort of match you were hoping for, Amplet? Massively so. Greatly. Like, really, really enjoyed this. Really enjoyed it. Um, it's They're not going to get it right every time, but I love seeing them get it right about 90% of the time with Jade Cargill in terms of the agent and the structure of these matches. You are watching, like... This is a Michael Sidgwick take from 2019, but you were watching a far better developmental system than the Performance Centre ever was in the form of the, the on-screen growth of some of the performers. Her Goldberg record that she's going to build up as they keep adding the numbers is virtually her cage match record too. Think about that. You know, this is not just, it's when it's 1-0, and oh, it's a, yeah, we don't know what you mean, your literal debut, but we're pretty much there for Jade Cargill. And that's absolutely remarkable. She's grabbing holds. She's being put in a position of having to make Having to make the babyface comeback while also still being too dominant and too big and too dangerous for anyone to really stop her, that's a pretty hard position to put in for somebody that you are being told is also a rookie. So I'm just what I'm saying is, is that Jade Cargill's act requires her to spin a lot of plays at the same time. And when she has the odd botch, I think that gets forgotten slightly. And it's she's there to be celebrated when the matches go really well. And the proof of the puns in the eating, because the crowd went nuts for this by the end. You know, it wasn't just Big Money Bunny. I know she's obviously the most over person on AEW's roster, but <laughs> like Jade Cargill is putting all of this together. We're not just seeing a streak. We're not just seeing a Goldberg Spear and Jackhammer streak being built. We're seeing somebody grow into yeah. this polished version of a professional wrestler at the same time. On it, like love this, and I like. I'm not saying this is like I loved it as a five star classic, but I loved it as a Jade Cargill experience. Yeah, me too. This is like a lot tighter. Um, than some other Jade Cargill matches. I wasn't mad on the lame blokes informing the finish, but it was certainly dramatic. It was certainly dramatic. And I don't think they like save the atmosphere or anything like that. I just all think it built towards a nice conclusion. They are handling the Jade Cargill character impeccably. And she's sometimes having a star in the ring is way more important than having a quote unquote great match. And Jade is very much evidence of that. Uh, so post-match, uh, Jade tells tells off poor terrified Tony Schiavone and, and yells out, you know, it's not who's next, it's basically who's left. Uh, and out comes Tay Conti. Um, she says she's not just next, she's the one who's going to beat Jade. They square off. Jade Cargill, because of the height difference, kisses Tay Conti on the forehead. Then the bunny gets involved. Um, please no more, but bunny and... and oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Um, had a nice finish. It was rough for a while, but it was a nice finish. Uh, so Connie hits her. <laughs> Connie hits her with the take AO, uh, but then turns around into a pump kick from Jade. Anna Jade tries to make the save, but it's all it's all too late. Um, yeah, love the fact that take Conti's next Hamlet. Yeah, really great. Um, it's she. I don't. I don't. I don't know the rankings. I don't know if the TBS title needs rankings. But sometimes a wrestler feels right for the spot, and wrestling can get away with that. I know this is a little bit 
uh, on this on the stage, stare down stuff that like Sid used to point out NXT did all the time. But I've got a lot of patience for it when the match feels right and this mm. feels good. There's more physical interaction, and yeah, like the last notable thing Tay Conti did on television was win that really great plunder brawl with the bunny and Penelope Ford. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think just by AW Women's Division standard, she just about feels enough of a contender. And the way she sold that um, bicycle pump kick was very promising. She sold it like death. <laughs> yes. Uh, guess who's backstage getting interviewed next? Keith Lee. Uh, he's asked about the... Uh... <laughs> he's holding a cup like a Hamlet skull on a Zoom call is Adam Wilborn. He's, uh, he's asked about the other participants in the Face of the Revolution match as the field has grown. And he says, Substantially. We've got Wardlow, Big Hobbs now, and, and Starks. He is the only one that I am familiar with, actually. Furthermore, I formed quite the acquaintance with Ricardo Starks. I'm sorry, I've got carried away there. Um, he gets interrupted by Ricky. Really? <laughs> the... he, uh, Ricky Starks. German style. <laughs> <laughs> he says, he says, Ricky Starks, that is. Uh, of course, he's you know he's familiar with him. Uh, old faces, new territories, and then he's listening to the Pod Boys. He does a Keith Lee impression. Hello, Keith Lee. How are yeah. you? Not quite there, Ricky. You're getting there, mate. But just a little bit. The bass was good. You just need a little, a little bit more dramatic inflection. To, uh... <laughs> a little bit more gravitas, <laughs> indeed, indubitably. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> this is one of those things where uh, don't get don't get me wrong here. I'm not taking the piss or anything. <laughs> Shut up. What, what I mean by this is when we do NXT and I go, oh, sorry boys, so it's gonna be a bit bit of a while longer getting these notes together because I've got to verbatim write out what Tiffany Bloody Stratton and Tony D'Angelo said. Now I'm like, oh god, Keith Lee's talking, right? Here we go. Uh, I gotta write this one down word for word. Let me get my quill. Yeah, I'll get a few more words in there. Anyway, uh, where are we? Ricky Starks uh, wants Keith Lee to know that uh, they don't care where he's from. Team Taz runs things around here. Stay in your lane, mind your P's and Q's. And then there's a, a really mouthwatering stare down between Keith Lee and uh, and Powerhouse Hobbs. And Starks just gets in between them and says, that, that, save, it for, save it for revolution. Love this. I mean, I doesn't, you, you, you leave us nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one thing I, I sense you will have something to say about is the main event. Oh, my word. Daniel Garcia versus versus Brian Danielson. And uh, just, to, just to steal, if not echo, uh, Michael Sidgwick's points from Twitter. But I'm sure the, the super fans will... Uh, mega fans. Mega will, fans. Sorry. Well, the mega fans will forgive me. Uh, I'd pity Daniel Garcia in this match. And that's something I've not really felt before. But I will get to your thoughts in a sec, Sid. I'll run you through what happened. Uh, Danielson starts him off, shoves him into the corner, talks some trash. Of course, they exchange uppercuts. Um, Garcia struggling to grapple. He's, you know, he's he's holding his own, but he's still struggling against Brian, uh, Brian Danielson. So he said he just chops him. And Danielson, oh, he likes the taste of that, tells him to chop him again. Uh, but as he goes to do that, Danielson, sneaky little bastard that he is, takes him down in a leg lock. Um, suplex goes to set up the label lock. Garcia rolls around. Um, and they and they set they do manage to get it in, but Garcia gets a foot on the ropes. Uh, Danielson flips over him out of the corner, goes to the running clothesline, but Garcia takes out the leg for a great counter to take us to break. Uh, when we come back, they're jockeying for position on the apron. 
and Danielson uh, suplexes Garcia to the floor and hits that diving knee of his. And when they get back in the ring, uh, Danielson again dominating, stomps, suplexes, all that sort of thing. Uh, he hits her tiger suplex bridge and transitions into cattle mutilation. But Garcia powers out of it and puts him in an ankle lock. Uh, Danielson, though, then counters um, Garcia as he goes for the dragon screw. And he just does that for him, gets the legs. He stomps for Garcia's head. And he does the uh, triangle choke into, I'm just going to keep calling it the Nate Diaz pose, the flex, because he knows he's got the match one. He's got the submission in. The referee calls it. Um, Post-match, Danielson gets on the mic and asks the crowd if they thought Garcia was violent enough. But then in comes Dupe-O to attack Brian Danielson. Who should make the save, though? His music hits. He walks through the crowd. Uh, Then John Moxley, he uh, takes out 2.0. Garcia is about to twat Moxley with a chair, but Danielson takes that away from him, and Garcia turns around into a paradigm shift. Uh, And Danielson grabs a mic, and he's still got the chair, and he chucks that away. He says, I don't need this to make someone bleed, but he accepts John Moxley's challenge for revolution. What a closing line, Sidge. Don't be surprised if you're the only one bleeding. Oh, God, I love Brian Danielson so much. (laughs) I'm on a Zoom call wearing a new balance sports sweatshirt the color of which is burgundy and i bought it specifically because i'm such a mark and i was so high on danielson when he first arrived in AEW, and it gets better and goddamn better and goddamn better i say this all the time the mega fans will forgive me i do not get tired of saying this because i never get tired of actually watching it brian danielson's character is i'm the best wrestler in the world and he wrestles like he's the best wrestler in the world in terms of how the quality is and in terms of how he controls a match and what it means to actually try and get something against him. I have no earthly idea of how he does this, but I always get the feeling, oh, you're, I'm watching the best wrestler in the world. This guy I thought of as this just ridiculous technical prodigy. It's such a disgusting age. He gets his ankle picked. But I get fists, slaps in the throat and ribs, and you think, Jesus, he's in trouble. I've never seen, I never thought that Daniel Garcia was in trouble, or at least when I have, it's like his heel work has been so effective that I'm, I'm glad of it in the story of the match. But he looked like he was in trouble because Danielson is so skilled and so goddamn hard and so goddamn mean. And it never looked like, oh, you, you know, that's not a good story to tell because you don't want to embarrass the poor guy. You kind of do because you're telling this wonderful overarching story where you need to get more violent. You need to get away from the tutelage of these dogs. You need to be more like me, and I'm going to teach you. To uh, It's just Danielson's the goddamn best. A lot of the technical work was sublime. The finish was just great, how they maneuvered from one dragon screw into the other. And what was so great about that is Garcia had used it quite a few times successfully during the course of the match. And Danielson is so clever and intelligent and experienced that he's like, oh, you're doing this too often. I've worked out a counter. And the counter is I kick your ass. The counter is I stamp your brains out of your ears, you idiot. Oh, my God. Danielson is unbelievable. The storyline is unbelievable. There are at least three things happening in AEW that are best of the year in any other year before AEW formed. I love the fact that... um... I had a, a thought whilst this match was going on. And like you say, he was just torturing Daniel Garcia, who normally does that to, to his opponents, um, which is him and uh, uh, Brian Danielson and, and Brie Bella sitting in the doctor's office and them saying, um, Mr. Danielson, um, you're, you're, you're cleared to wrestle again. And Brie's like, oh, 
Brian, this is fantastic. You can go and you can win all these titles and get all this adoration of fans, and it zooms in into Brian Danielson's brain, and it's just him just wrecking people, <laughs> and bending people in all sorts of positions because that's what he loves it, and I love watching him doing it at Hamlet. Oh yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, very little to add other than like because I just want these used to repeat some of the gushing praise for absolutely all of this. Daniel Garcia walks the earth looking like a man and he does it so well he performs this it's like God, like he needs his head kicking in once in a while and then he <laughs> says, stop kicking his head in like <laughs> ace um last week I, I love this feud so much and it barely even feels like they've scratched the surface of it being a feud this one between john moxley and brian danielson i love that last week john moxley tells this story of a danielson both uh, jovial enough to get dressed in the taxi and then mean enough to like batter a young John Moxley who's wanting this as an opportunity. He tells you a story and then AEW shows you a match in which Brian Danielson is still that man. <laughs> so like, you've been given this visual of something of like, yeah, we were younger guys back then, you know, but like 12 years later and Brian Danielson is still that guy just doing it to different young kids. He's still, he's like tonight, Daniel Garcia was John Moxley of a different time. But what Daniel, what Brian Danielson doesn't know is that John Moxley isn't that John Moxley anymore. Nor is he Lee Moriarty, nor is he Daniel Garcia. He's John Moxley. And Danielson theoretically can't do that. And that's just going to make the escalation in the revolution match all the more satisfying. Whether or not it's both men going from like respectable gentleman's contest to the first point at which somebody twists the knife or Moxley tries to get in front of it and says, no, I'm going to tease you out into having a fight here. You know, the, the use of violence is such a key word. The, like the awesome line, Brian, like these seven day stretches, you know, in WWE when somebody waits seven days to do a thing and it's just, why? Why did you wait? So, did, are you only at work when the cameras, when the red light's on in the NXT dome or whatever? No, MJF has waited seven days for a reason. Brian has taken a week to think about what he's going to do when he has his next match and what he's going to say when he's brought face-to-face with John Moxley. There is a reason why that gap exists. Sublime, absolutely sublime. To go back to what we said at the very start of this podcast, it's a good job that Hangman Page was given the permission to talk first because I simply don't think that his feud would have felt as big as the other, as some of the other ones set up on this show. What a pay-per-view revolution now looks like. Mm. Save for some weird filler. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, a really, aside from one thing, a really great episode of Dynamite and a hell of a build towards Revolution, which is a week on Sunday. Can't wait for it now. Uh, we will, of course, be doing a live stream for that on our YouTube channel, so do join us for that. And let us know your thoughts uh, on AEW Dynamite on uh, on Twitter, at WhatCultureWWE. Why say you can follow all three of us? You can follow Michael Hamplett at... Michael Hamplett. You can follow Michael Sidgwick at... M. Sidgwick. Follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE. And make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts. But this has been the AW Dynamite Review. My thanks to the Dadley Boys. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.